Good evening, everyone, or good day. It all depends when you listen. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I am one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me tonight is Thomas Harper to discuss the Bad Batch episodes, Clone Conspiracy and Truth and, Con Truth and Consequences, which are a tour de force that would have made sense in the Clone Wars era. Uh, this is some of the best storytelling we've seen on Bad Batch. Thomas, what did you think of it? I loved it. I just got the chance to watch it today, uh, just a little while before we recorded. I was out of town at Batu with, with my family, as we mentioned in the last episode. So I get all these text messages Wednesday, Thursday, Friday from different friends. And they're like, oh, my God, did you see Bad Patch? And here I am thinking like, oh, what what could possibly happen on the episode that I can't watch the day it's released? And man, they were right. And this is some of the best Star Wars storytelling that we've seen in any medium. And, and to get it in an animated form is just really tremendous. It, it felt intensely connected to so many different properties and stories that we love and and it was just incredible right down to the little uh jingle that played before palpatine came onto the senate floor and you get that uh bone chilling sort of feeling in you that and omega's theme while she's media uh trying to meditate and it's like hmm i i still believe she's the clone of a force user i because she's she's female mm -hmm. not Django fat so she's, right it's like that's a big difference than all the other ones so i um ones who are clearly brothers so exactly uh clone but a clone of who what's the dna to say uh but let's before we go any further what did you do in bat two well, uh, I finally, finally got to do Smuggler's Run with a crew that was all people that I know. So in this case, family members, uh, I piloted it. My brother and one of my brother-in-laws, who is uh, both my brother-in-law's brothers-in-law are, are huge Star Wars fans. But it was very distracting because I kept looking over at uh, my brother that was co-pilot with me just watching his reaction to everything he sat in the the seat with the hyperspace lever and so i may have smashed us into a few things just because of uh that distraction but it was a lot of fun uh, we had my seven-year-old nephew as engineer he was terrified the whole time but had a great time uh got to do rise of the resistance which was incredible as always and um yeah, lots of blue milks, lots of green milks, got some good quality time at Oga. I got a booth for the first time at Oga's, which was fun. So, yeah, it's good Star Wars stuff all the way around on top of other good Disney stuff. I have not yet done Rise of the Resistance, so I, I do need got to. I, I've heard nothing but great things. I love Smuggler's Run. Uh, I'm building a small uh, lightsaber collection. So, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. all good stuff and look yeah. the pictures looked super fun so yeah the non-star wars thing that i would highlight if you get a chance to come out i don't know that they'll build this at disneyland but i did get to ride uh, the cosmic rewind roller coaster for guardians of the galaxy 
a lot of fun. I'm not a big roller coaster fan, but it was a lot of fun. Good storytelling in it. The entire cast is in it. Uh, and then some some cameos. It's uh, it was a really good time. Probably my favorite coaster uh, at my favorite ride at outside of anything Star Wars related at Disney now. So uh, good to know. We don't have that. We got the Avengers campus that I haven't done That's yet. That's true. That's I, a nice um, trade off. Yeah. Uh, I'm due for a trip, so I'm due for a trip. Uh, so we'll, again, make that happen. So let's jump into some of the legal issues. So out of the gate, we begin with the Senate hearing. Uh, well, prior to the Senate hearing, we begin with clones in a bar, and one of them wants to blow the whistle on what happened on Camino. This is an opportunity to discuss whistleblower protection. Uh, this should go without saying, you cannot shoot a whistleblower uh, under that's federal. That's not. You're telling. Wait, you're not. You're telling me that that's not a gray area in federal no. law. Okay. Super, super clear. Super <laughs> clear. All right. Whistleblowing is defined under Black's Law iPad app as an employee who reports. Uh, employer wrongdoing to a government or law enforcement agency. Federal and state laws protect whistleblowers from employer retaliation. Then the Whistleblower Protection Act, 5 U.S.C. Section 2302, subsection B8 says, if there's a disclosure, <laughs> pardon me, a disclosure is protected under the WPA, if the employee discloses information the employee reasonably believes to be evidence of a violation of, of any law, rule, or regulation, gross mismanagement, a gross waste of funds, an abuse of authority, or a substantial and specific danger to public health or safety. Disclosure means a formal or informal communication or transmission, but does not include a communication concerning policy decisions that lawfully exercise discretionary discretionary authority unless the employee or uh, uh, applicant providing the disclosure reasonably believes uh, the disclosure evidences. So here the issue is blowing up Camino, like aerial bombardment of all the cities. So like there are no cities left on this planet that they go around and just start blowing others up. I don't know how many cities they were, but apparently there are no more Kaminoans left. You know, this genocide, that's a whistleblower issue of being able to say, our guys ordered us to open fire on civilian targets. Anything to add to that, Tom? Yeah, this is there's a nice counterbalance here in in how this issue is presented, because on one hand, you've got Slip who goes to Senator Chuchi. You know, it's there are um, certain avenues for that that in, in real world uh, whistleblower cases where they, they have to navigate and sort of properly blow the whistle. There's such a thing as a protected communication, that sort of thing. Here, I think it's safe to say that he's opening up to to somebody with authority. I think this would, in in sort of Star Wars land, fall within the bounds of a protected communication. What it's juxtaposed against is Clone Trooper Cade, the the trooper that got assassinated, 
And he went the blackmail route, <laughs> probably not something that's going to earn him uh, whistleblower protection because he goes straight to Admiral Rampart and attempts to to blackmail him, says, hey, I'm going to reveal this. I'm, I'm going public unless you uh, choose to, to um, you know, come out with it yourself. And, uh, you know, I I don't know that that would earn him. It wouldn't earn, shouldn't earn him a blaster bolt to the back. But, um, you know, approaching it in that way, I don't know that it would trigger uh, whistleblower protection. Um, it it might because there this gets complicated, but there are procedures to follow the, to say, hey, I want to disclose this, you know, and fill out the forms administratively. Now, just going right to the commanding officer and say, I'm going to do this unless you do. It's like, that's a bad plan. He wiped out all the Kaminoans. Do you think threatening him with disclosure is going to work? So uh, he was distraught, probably inebriated, because again, no good decisions happen in a bar. And uh, uh, he probably, and he did that before going to the bar. So again, just it's just dumb. Like it was not a good decision to make. He should have just reported it. Probably yeah. would have still ended up dead. But uh, at least that way, uh, he wasn't drawing a target on himself out of the gate. You know, by way of comparison, the confidential whistleblower from the first Trump impeachment is still a confidential whistleblower. The, only the lawyer knows of that person's identity. And so that person's protected. Our clone heroes were not protected <laughs> because no. they, they, they were targets. And you see the sort of chilling effect, the reason why it's important to have these robust protections for whistleblowers, because at a base level, if you're exposed to either retribution or in this case, uh, blaster fire, it, it really has a chilling effect, if not a, uh, a death inducing effect on folks that want to come forward with information that the reason this law exists is because we want folks to come forward with uh, information, with evidence of uh, you know, the things that we deem protectable, uh, information about fraud, waste, abuse, et cetera. And that can't happen if every time somebody opens their mouth to, to disclose something, something bad happens to that person, whether it's physical harm or, or just, you know, their, their career ends or something like that. So these laws are, are really important. They're treated importantly. I mean, it, it played out very publicly, um, with the impeachment, as you mentioned. And yeah, if only we had Mark Zaid on, he could talk at length uh, with a top level of expertise about this, but it was cool to see it dis uh, displayed in Star Wars. Yeah, and and he would know. So like, uh, he would- A little know. bit, <laughs> just, a little bit. Just... <laughs> and I love that guy. He's so much fun and he wants to go to Comic-Con. Yes. Um, and uh, can't wait to spend some time with him again because he's fun at a show like that. 
like his his collector eye and knowledge of a golden age comics is pretty uh yeah. amazing so but uh we will we will press forward uh, and and definitely we could get him to talk more about this so this opens the door to some other uh issues that come up first off there's conspiracy to commit murder rampart having a clone going around murdering people is a conspiracy to commit murder there's also attempted murder because of those who survive <laughs> uh there's also conspiracy to murder a senator now federal law states that anyone who kidnaps and kills a united states senator or a member of Congress or the executive branch shall be punished by death or imprisonment up to life. And that's 18 USCS section 351B2. Now there's another issue that came up that, that you identified with a, a bigger issue. Uh, why don't you speak to that? Yeah, so the you're, are you talking the genocide issue? Yeah, yeah, hard to miss that. But yeah. Yeah, it's we learn in this episode maybe unsurprisingly so that in addition to the destruction of the the cloning facilities on Camino, most if if not just about all of the Kaminoans were killed in that strike. And it appears to be by design. Uh the the idea being that you know probably Kaminoans have sort of the galaxy's market on clone technology cornered. They would have intimate knowledge about all sorts of things to include the design of the clones, the inhibitor chip, et cetera, and would probably prove to be an ongoing thorn in Palpatine's side going forward if they just existed. And so intentionally going to their planet and wiping them out, even if it wasn't via super laser, uh, sorry, Alderaan, is absolutely genocide. When you target a population for destruction because of any of their characteristics, religious, um, race, whatever it is, it fits the bill for genocide. It's it's probably, they, they call it a crime against humanity for good reason. It's one of the, uh, not one of, it's probably the worst uh, war crime that you can commit i mean there it doesn't get any worse than than mass slaughter of a people and i like that it it's treated with appropriate weight in these episodes the idea that the empire not just would go in and destroy cloning facilities and and clones that it was paying for uh you know living beings but that it would wipe out the kaminoan people in an attempt to uh, move forward with some sort of military plan to build a conscript army. It was rightfully appalling. And I love the moment where the, the footage from Rampart's ship is finally played and you just get this sort of a Paul falls over the, uh, the audience and, and it prompts Palpatine's uh, entrance. So the interesting thing here is that Rampart didn't pull the trigger on any turbo laser on the, on those star destroyers but there's such a thing as command responsibility and that 
links him inextricably in the chain of legal responsibility for those acts. So just because you didn't do the dirty work yourself doesn't absolve you for, from criminal liability. And the fact that he gave the order there, regardless of whether he was following orders himself or whether he personally killed or didn't kill a single Cameron Owen is really irrelevant. Uh, he, you know, that that liability for that core criminal offense attaches to him. Obviously, it would attach up the chain uh, to, to others in that command structure, but it rests squarely on Rampart's shoulders. And I mean, this we didn't see Kaminoans die in the bombardment because it looked like the city was deserted. Uh, it, that makes me believe that they just went around the planet blowing up city after city, which is truly evil. Uh, I'm just because again, mass murder. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. very difficult to comprehend that in a children's TV show. They address it very well. Uh, but yeah, we we have full on genocide and it acknowledged as such. Um, yeah. That's very intense for any animated program that's, oh, say, not anime. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they do come out swinging with that. Uh, the following orders issue has been litigated many times. I mean, it, it's me lie, you know, with, with the order of who said kill every one of them or kill them all. And the defense, I was just following orders. Uh, it raises interesting issues for the clones who were on board uh, as well because they carried it out and be one thing to to take out the first city that's deserted but when you start going to the inhabited ones what's the cover story was it a global storm then or is there just one place where they lived on the planet which seems unlikely yeah i don't think that it's a large population and we don't have a full sort of galactic history of Camino. It's not an insignificant number of, of people, but um, I don't know that their cities you know, covered the entire planet. It's a water-based planet so that um, we never get the sense that it's sort of like Mon Calamari, where you have this very expansive uh, population of both uh, Mon Cala and Quarren living under the surface. It seems like this is... Um, you know, a much, much smaller population than that, but still genocide is genocide and orders aren't an excuse. There's such a thing as a legal and an illegal order. And you have a duty not to follow, not to obey an illegal order, just as you have a duty not to issue illegal orders. And I love that the, the clones genetic obedience so by design they have been modified to be less independent uh, and to follow orders without question as we learned in attack of the clones that is exploited here and then it's used sort of beautifully in a really twisted way by palpatine at the very end of the episode to justify their replacement to say these soldiers executed this terrible order without hesitation. I mean, he used some of his same words 
that he used to, to issue Order 66 and wipe out the Jedi. And it becomes the justification to, to replace these troops because they don't have the ability, at least in the Empire's eyes, to distinguish between a lawful and an unlawful order and make that sort of moral judgment call that we expect professional soldiers to make. But they have. So like the General Krell arc, they figured out this is wrong. We're not going to follow it. An illegal order should be illegal on its face. Blowing up a city should be, wait a minute, like we were made here. It's like, this is the same, right? Yeah. This is aggressive uh, urban renewal uh, for for flattening a, a city. None of that's good. Uh, it's it's a very disturbing issue. Now the which then is exploited for the defense recruitment bill. The and it's still not clear if it's a volunteer service or a draft or a combination of the two, because by the time of Solo, several you know, which is what seven years later, mm-hmm. that uh, they're accepting recruits. So. Uh, our countries had uh, a very tenuous relationship with drafts. The first draft in North America was actually the Confederacy. And uh, they they were not good at joining. There was a reason why they committed treason to begin with. Uh, but the Southern states only wanted to send supplies to their own uh, state militias that were fighting. They didn't have like the big picture in mind. So hypothetically, uh, if there was good supplies from South Carolina, they only wanted them going to South Carolinian soldiers. People from Georgia could starve. One of the, one of the many reasons why they lost. Not, Res- not team players. <laughs> it's a recipe for battlefield success if I've ever heard it. Yeah, the first Northern in the Union draft was July 12th of 1863. And... That that uh, was brutal because it immediately led to the New York draft riots, which were highly racially based. Uh, the first four pages of the New York Herald on July 13th had all the names of those who had been killed at Gettysburg. The next three pages were names of those who'd just been drafted. And the Irish in New York felt that they were dying for Black people and were upset about that and launched the largest race riot in U.S. history. Lincoln had to send in troops to put down the uh, protesters with cannon and bayonet. Uh, the exact death toll of from the rioters is unknown because they were dumping bodies in the river. Uh, but they specifically targeted African-Americans and police. Like they beat the faces off of police officers and then hung them. Uh, I mean, just atrocious, atrocious, uh, un-American behavior. And uh, the soldiers put them down and they were pretty irate with, we just went through hell at Antietam or at Gettysburg and you do this. So uh, fast forward to pre-World War II, 
seeing war coming and what was happening in Europe, we uh, debated a conscription bill. It took George Marshall lobbying Congress people in order for it to pass by one vote. Because the mindset was, let the Europeans die. Pearl Harbor happens. A lot of that attitude goes away. Uh, there are still people holding Nazi summer camps. Uh, it was fundraising and, and finances that got those uh, traders uh, in trouble. But uh, we've had, you know, a, an ugly history route with the draft. And it's why Nixon got rid of it. And why we have a volunteer military today, uh, which is you know, the, the way to go. Uh, and then hopefully we never need a draft ever again. Uh, that doesn't mean we still, we don't have selective service uh, that you register in case we do have a big war uh, that we can uh, be ready to fight it. Now you actually served. I did not. I've never worn combat boots. I never had to get up at four o'clock in the morning and do push-ups. Do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> no, with, with regard to the, the star Wars thread here it's really interesting because you have the the ishi tib senator that is in favor of the i think he's a rep from the banking clan actually which is really ironic to see the banking clan and then the commerce guild um both represented in the senate just a, like a short time after they were sort of founding members of the uh, the Confederacy of Independent Systems, but he gives this line that it's important to to have this uh, conscript army or this this um, sort of regular army because it would be an army of the people that's that are defending their homes and and maybe I'm attributing one of Palpatine's lines to him, but the the sentiment is that soldiers who come from the people who are fighting for their homes are better, tr more trustworthy, you know, you, you take your pick of uh, superlatives. And the irony is that there's not much alien representation in the eventual ranks of the Imperial stormtroopers. So for somebody like an Tib to come out and, and um, praise this army to be only for it to, to really not represent the galaxy. I mean, this is just another example of Palpatine's manipulation at work uh, with folks. And, and uh, we get to see that the episode and or the second episode and on sort of a master note there. Yeah. Dark and sadistic. Uh, yeah. Which goes to the larger issue of what do you do with the existing army? You know, in real life, there is no shortage of people who have served in our military that end up homeless. And that's a colossal problem that we haven't figured out a good way to address uh, other than we know it's a problem. And we, there are groups that try to do uh, programs to help people adjust, whether it's um, like swords to plowshares, you know, that, that focus on how to become farmers as a way to cope with the loss of a regimented lifestyle. Uh, but not having a program in place is a good example of what happened post-World War I and post-World War II, 
where we did not have a plan in one situation and we did in the second because we learned from our mistakes. So with the first one, World War I, there, there wasn't a GI Bill. There wasn't anything like that in place. You had soldiers that would be promised a bonus at some point in the future, and that uh, in 1932 would lead to the infamous March of the Bonus Army, where you had soldiers suffering through the Depression wanted their bonuses then and not at some future date, and they had an encampment and President Hoover ordered the troops out that were led by uh, MacArthur. And flanking MacArthur was both Patton and Eisenhower, uh, much, much younger versions of themselves. Uh, footage of the Capitol up in flames with tanks rolling through it is how MacArthur ends up in the Philippines. And uh, Ike and Patton would do okay. But, uh, you know, that was... Mark, MacArthur being brutal on U.S. veterans uh, who wanted in DC. In DC, no, <laughs> it was just like screw you. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. Oh. Like like central DC, these camps were were located not on some suburb or outskirts. So yeah, the what what is interesting here from a legal perspective is that the modern us military is it's a contractual system there is no mandatory service for americans like there is in some other countries like israel and so you agree to serve a term of years uh if you're enlisted uh you are on a, a contract and that contract can be uh renewed or you sign a new contract you re-enlist as as they call it um and you, you sort of build your career on these enlistment contracts. For officers, you have a commission from the president and you serve at the president's pleasure. You can resign that commission uh, at any time with certain caveats. So if you uh, owe time to the government by virtue of having taken up, say, an ROTC scholarship or attended a service academy, that can be an exception. But the bottom line or the bottom thread uh, running across all U.S. service members is that uh, your service does end at some point. The government can tell you that your service is over. And there are certain triggers that can end your service, one of them being age. Uh, you, you can reach a certain age where the government says you can no longer serve. There's a mandatory age limit uh, that varies by component. And you see that referenced here, this really powerful scene, probably one of my favorite in any new Star Wars media, where Senator Chuchi, who's an amazing carry forward from the Clone Wars, if you remember her from uh, the, the arc that she was in, gosh, that was probably season two, maybe season three uh, on Pantora. But in any event, she's addressing some clones in 79s, the clone bar on Coruscant, and she says, you're going to be too old to serve at, at one point. I understand that that this is all you know, but your service will end at some point. And you have to be thinking about what life looks like after that. And that just su touched such a profound nerve with me, not because I'm anywhere close to the age cutoff, but because 
separation from service for whatever reason is a big deal for for folks that uh folks like the clones who have only ever known military service they're you know i would liken the clones to somebody who grew up in a military family attended only really sort of military style boarding schools their entire life enlisted immediately after graduating from said boarding school and just served, served multiple deployments, and that's all they know. And now they're facing this sort of oncoming train of reality that they can't do that for their entire life. And it clearly, it it bewilders them, but you can, there's a palpable sense of uh, just dread and, and terror in some form that everything that they know is about to change and that it's being pulled out from under them by the empire. But in both the real world and in this case, uh, in Star Wars, that's part of the system. The government gets to decide how and when you serve. You play a part in that, but you don't always have the final say. And it's just heartbreaking to see the clones in the middle of all this jockeying. service members and providing for them after their service so they can readjust, find careers. We did a good job after World War II with the GI Bill uh, to with, with home uh, buying options for service members. Uh, again, it, it built up wealth for the second half of the 20th century. So we did not repeat a you know, recession after World War II, the same way that we endured after World War I briefly before the roaring 20s kicked in. But, uh, you know, the goal is to have a plan in place. And when there are, you know, these galactic senators are saying like, yeah, we'll decommission them. They're people. You can't euthanize them. Yeah. They're not going to just disappear. Yeah, and you know the comment about they're not droids you can turn off. Yeah. So uh, it it connects beautifully with that very quick scene in in Kenobi where he walks past that clone that's begging on the street, and uh, you you see sort of the end run of all of this. So there's there's a the New Dawn book that came out sort of right after Disney purchased one of the characters in there he's not a clone but he's a clone wars veteran and he's been dealing with the the ramifications of the really paltry support offered by the empire ever since the war ended which is again not a surprise bad for morale overall because a little bit if you take the position oh we'll just get rid of them it's like then who you know realize that someone will get rid of you like you really need to think long term of not putting people out to pasture to die, uh, and and some of these folks apparently feel that way, and it's uh, it's it's a dark turn. Now the clone that we see in Kenobi, I mean, there's there's a small chance that's an outlier that you know for the bill that got past it, it did have the modifications that our heroes wanted that rampart conceded to so unless all of those provisions got cut in the final analysis 
those should be in place. That doesn't mean that they're going to be enforced. They could be ignored. There could also be another plan for Order 70 for the clones to shoot each other. Uh, But, I mean, like, think to Rebels, we see Rex and Gregor and Wolf. Wolf. Yeah, you know, they're in, you know, a six-legged tank, you know, fishing and very reminiscent of Jaws. Like, is that? <laughs> what's what's the option here? I mean, like it yeah. it could be both. I mean, like, all cl- all clones are issued one walker. <laughs> Go live in it. I I don't know all of the history because there's you know, there's what's printed in the books and then there's what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know how many people had a hard time readjusting post-World War II. And like, we didn't treat PTSD well. We didn't know what it was called. Um, you know, the best picture of 1946 uh, was not It's a Wonderful Life. It was one about guys coming home from World War II. And that was... Oh, maybe it was 1947 because the movie came out in 46 the best years of our lives and which is about guys you know going back to the town that they grew up in and you know how things have changed and it begins with them flying over and like looking down at the town so uh, it's like because life changed that one best picture over it's a wonderful life like it spoke to people mm-hmm. you know like i i can't ask my grandfathers anymore what what they experienced uh but you had those who came home from war and made a per- point of living a good life like so you know when they you know people buying houses and jobs and you know living the american dream and and giving rise to you know baby boomers after the war you know, there were those who lived well. Um, and there were those who would, you know, get together and be highly traumatized and talk about the things that they saw. Yeah. I had a, had a grand uncle who died before I was born. Uh, so my maternal grandfather's brother served in the army and was deployed in the Pacific and was able to contract every tropical disease imaginable. You know, came home, was an alcoholic and drank himself to death. Uh, another grand uncle, uh, was in the Philippines and a POW. I think he was at, in the Bataan death march, uh, cause he, from what he described without outright admitting it, mm-hmm. like, you know, on his deathbed, he didn't think about all the great things that he had in his life. It was the hell he endured as a POW. And that's tragic. Because we didn't deal with the trauma that those service members had. How does this relate to the clones? Do they have anything being put together to ensure that that those who fought for the Republic uh, ensure that they're cared for? Are they just going to be discarded? Yeah, I don't know. Unlikely. I mean, the Rampart reacts with sort of indignation when Chuchi first proposes 
even a pension. He's he's like millions of clones. You want us to provide for them? It it just it it's completely foreign to him. He sees them as equipment, not people. And there's a comment that he makes to Masameda at some point when they're talking in private, where he he talks about giving into some of these concessions, but that it doesn't really matter. But because it sounds like through legislative jockeying the timing of when all these things will kick in, it just really won't matter. So, you know, maybe they time it. So the, you know, the provisions that are most costly come into play after most clones are dead or something like that. They, they just creatively uh, maneuver uh, the wording of the legislation so that a lot of these requirements just don't have an impact. I mean, you see this all the time with, with legislation where, uh, sort of victories will be touted. Hey, we're going to do this and that. And then when you dig into the actual timeline for some of these commitments, it's like, okay, by 2050, you're you're going to do this sort of thing. So like, we're talking about glacial progress in whatever this issue is. So I suspect it's it's very minimal, if nothing. I we don't know of any sort of uh, galactic imperial VA Veterans Administration that that gets stood up. So I think it's fair to assume that they just don't do anything like that. There's no comprehensive care. Skelly, the character from New Dawn that I mentioned, this Clone Wars veteran, he lost a limb in the Clone Wars and he he just is very upset because they give him this sort of stock standard, uh, pretty terrible replacement arm. And he's struggled with it uh, ever since he got it uh, following the Clone Wars. And I think that's probably indicative of how the clones were treated let's let's just wait them out because they're they're aging at twice the speed of the rest of us they won't be around that much longer which is dark you know where it's the take these venator star destroyers and fly into a star and then we're we get rid of the venators and we get rid of you and i i know again with dave filoni's ability to rip out people's hearts don't be surprised if something horrible happens to characters that you love because it's something he does well. So uh, it's like everyone's still traumatized by fives. Like they're still yes. <laughs> still still sad about that one. So what what do we see happening? I don't know. We, we're we at the midway point. Uh, we have a palace intrigue. We got politics at galore. And it was all the stuff that made Clone Wars great. That's now arriving in Bad Batch. It's nice to see. I, I waited for the credits and confirmed. I was like, that sounds a lot like Ian McDermott. Like they brought, and they did. They brought him back to voice this sort of special appearance of the Emperor Thought that was cool versus one of the voice actors that's played him in the past. Um, McDermott didn't do the work for the Clone Wars. Um, so it was neat to see him back. And it was just uh, that was one of those moments in Star Wars where you realize the power that certain characters have with sparing use. And it still matters when he comes on screen. And to hear him utter the words for the first time ever, Imperial Stormtroopers, that gave me chills. I mean, most most times you say that word, and it's just like relating or referring to their 
clumsiness or uh, whatever, but there was some real menace behind that mention. And it it really evokes some powerful memories, some powerful Star Wars memories. And uh, I thought that was just a great moment and a great way to end the episode. Oh, yeah. Stakes are real. And it's interesting to see how he governs with hands off and I'll swoop in at the end because his end game was if Rampart pulls this off. Cool. If he doesn't. He's the Rampo, so I still win. Yeah. It's just, you know, okay, yeah, he's sinister and a bad guy for a reason. Yeah. yeah. I, I know he's a dark sider, so wearing black and looking scary is gonna, you know, give him a power boost. But you think just from like a PR perspective, maybe you want to be wearing white and looking cool, you know, and just like not scary. So that way you don't foster rebellion. <laughs> but... That was Val- that was Valorum's get up. He can't he can't ride in that guy's wake. <laughs> but like when he appears to Ezra at the end of Rebels, that's true. You know, he's doing the kindly grandfather yeah. impersonation. Don't worry. Like, Why didn't you do that all the time? People should know what the Emperor looks like. Yeah. You know, he's not on any credits. Like, how do you I mean be like someone not knowing what Joe Biden looks like? <laughs> Is it possible? Yeah. Is it probable? No. Uh, yeah, it's like, what does the vice president look like? People are going to know. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's just from a political science perspective. Uh, but the dark side tends to skew that. So with that, is there any other legal issues that uh, we should touch on? No, we had a little bit of, there was an allegation of misallocation of public funds by uh, by Rampart. We don't know where those funds were diverted. It sounds like they were allocated by the Senate for the um, Kaminoans. Kaminoans or, or, you know, some, some expenditure related to the clones that was reallocated. Um Rampart sort of chalks it up to, to, hey, it's classified. I can't discuss these things. They weren't misappropriated. They were just redirected. They're, the DOD, Congress is very sensitive about, in, in the real world, about uh, money being used for what is what it is allocated for. Um, money is allocated in certain buckets, and so it, it matters uh, sort of how it's spent and and maintaining those buckets that being said it's you know there are procedures for you know funds to be you know reallocated and and whether that happened behind the scenes i don't know it made me think uh, both in it with regard to that allegation and the allegation of the genocide on camino the business of defamation and the interplay with uh, the real world speech and debate clause, you know, this business of leveling pretty serious criminal accusations uh, in a public forum like that in a political body. And uh, obviously truth is a defense that, that Chuchi has. Um, but to what extent Chuchi as a politician bringing these things up in a political forum in an official extension of her duties would have from something like the speech and debate clause. Uh, good catch there because 
It's like we have evidence you committed genocide. That that's in her case, it's a true statement stated on the floor of the Senate speech and debate would defend her. If news was covering it and said, like, there is evidence that Rampart committed genocide, they're reporting a fact Mm -hmm. as opposed to or if somebody said, I think he committed genocide and that's opinion. Um, If somebody says he's a genocidal maniac, well, that's when the analysis begins of is that opinion or defamation? (laughs) So, yeah. um, And the answer is it depends. (laughs) So uh back specific yeah i i also really enjoy this is earlier in the the first episode uh there's a sort of a spirited debate amongst senators about the bill that that pops up uh sort of early on and bail organa points out that the uh the funding everything that they're talking about is an extension of the emergency powers act so this act that vested in Palpatine or the chancellor, uh, the ability to levy this army and send it to war. Now, here we are several degrees removed from the circumstances that led to that. And they they reference, hey, that it was the separatist crisis that, that did this. And now we're still using it, attempting to, to stretch it to fit a justification for a brand new army with no crisis at play. And and really the the justification is this sort of very flimsy. Well, there, there are insurgencies that are popping up, so we still need to use this. It really, I, I would be shocked if this, if the writers didn't base this on the debate concerning the use of force in Afghanistan and Iraq over two decades as an extension of the authorization for use of military force, so the the bill that was passed by Congress in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 that gave the president broad authority to go after those responsible for 9-11. And that that authorization got stretched beyond its limits. I mean, the AUMF was uh, the subject of a lot of ink was spilled over that and the, the ways in which it was twisted and stretched to justify all sorts of things. Um, and I thought that was a really cool thing to see sort of play out in the Star Wars universe here. Yeah, it, you know, it happened with Tonkin Gulf as well, uh, with how that expanded uh, and <laughs> in a bad way. And Understatement of the podcast. Yeah, it's a, there's a reason why we ended up with the War Powers Act afterwards. So it's like, whoa, we should have thought that through. Yeah, rushing legislation is never good um it's one thing if you have to declare war and it's one thing with the authorization to use force after 9-11 for what we had to do after 9-11 like that's been my entire legal career like that happened before i got bar results Uh, when Buttigieg was running for president you know his position was we should re-up that you know, so we debate what we need to be doing because we should not be relying on something 21 years old Yeah, that like the time has passed. Like we should look at different use, you know, authorizations. Like when the times that the United States has either declared war or done a force bill of some kind, 
It's been for specific purposes. Uh, fighting the Barbary pirates, you know, the quasi war that we had with France, you know, they're like those things like congressional authorization were specific for what needed to be done. Not taking any action <laughs> for, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not linked to 9-11. So, yeah. and, and that's a good comparison of, of this emergency powers act brought by Jar Jar. Uh, <laughs> who is good not, callback. Who is not here? So, like, what? Like, where? yeah. But it's it, it's this great. If if you think about it in the context of other material that we've seen, this is sort of the the one of the first major steps of the. Without them realizing it, the Galactic Senate really undermining its own authority, and missing a chance to to uh, sort of reassert itself as a strong governing body instead in the wake of of the war they you know continue to cede power to the executive in palpatine and really make themselves irrelevant and so by the time the death star is created in a new hope you know there's some concern over uh the senate what they might say about leia's ship being captured and um you know the the existence of the death star but they are so diminished at that point that the emperor because of the power that they've uh given to him is able to just dissolve the body um and and in in can we don't see this on screen but send a lot of those senators to prison and and just completely sweep them away as as Tarkin says so it's this moment that is amazing to get in an animated series. And it's one of those that I would highlight. I think if if the average Star Wars fan that's only watched live action were to be aware that something like this is happening in an animated series is like one of those drop everything moments and go watch the Bad Batch because you should, because it's important Star Wars that connects to other Star Wars and helps really color how we perceive and, and see other things that are happening in the galaxy. Well, that and you know the <laughs> the bigger issue of this is an animated show for seven-year-olds we see a clone commit suicide after yeah. assassinating a couple people it's like yeah that screams like ch children's yeah. programming to me <laughs> and then we're gonna have lots of political intrigue yeah so good for them <laughs> do it okay it's just kids are advanced Okay, sure, there's content that's inappropriate. Like anyone who says otherwise is daft in the head. But don't insult their intelligence. When you, like, I remember watching Star Blazers as a five-year-old, and which is like genocide of the human race and using the you know, Imperial Japanese battleship Yamato to go out and save the world. Okay with it. Like, I was five. Like, the... Kids are smart. They can handle it. They can understand if you treat them with respect. Uh, yeah. So again, which is what's happening here. <laughs> so yeah. good, good for the creators. Good for the yeah. creators. All right. So with that, everyone, thanks for tuning in. 
we we covered a lot of ground and you heard a lot of uh, pontification on the treatment of uh, service members and uh, other historical thoughts. That said, we'll be back. Uh, we're going to be gearing up for Mandalorian season three. We got Picard coming up. They're, we're going to get super busy, super fast. And uh, then we have con season as well. So, yes. yeah, it's it's going to be fun. I'm very excited for 23. If if you're out there and you are attending PAX East in Boston at the end of March, we are officially they have released the panel schedule. It is out and you can find us on Thursday night at the con at 630 p.m. in the Bobcat Theater. So 6.30 p.m. if you're building out your con schedule for PAX East, look for myself, look for Gabby Martin, and I'll be there with uh, two of my fellow Red Cross compatriots, and we will talk all things uh, IHL Law of War in video games, which will be a lot of fun. And rest assured, there will be Star Wars in there. there Otherwise, I would give up my legal geeks creds. (laughs) Yes, that would be weird. Uh, So everyone... Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky. Y'all take care. Thank you.